Good morning, everyone. Uh, nice to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, today, we are continuing in a series that we started last week called A Picture of God. And we're going to be taking the next couple months to look at uh, sort of the life and stories about and teachings of Jesus. And looking at how uh, when, when, we, when we look to Jesus, we end up seeing a clearer picture of God. So we're going to look at this kind of chron- somewhat chronologically up through uh, Easter, up through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and we're doing this because, because Jesus himself said, because the apostles John and Paul said, that when you look at Jesus, you actually see a picture of God. When you see Jesus, when you have seen Jesus, you have actually seen God. So we're going to look at the gospel accounts of Jesus and try to draw out of that a little bit of a picture of God. Now today, having, having come through a series uh, in Christmas looking from the Old Testament forward to the incarnation of Jesus, his birth in Bethlehem, we're going to be picking up in sort of the next major event in his life, which is uh, his baptism. So today we're going to be focused in Luke 3. Uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Luke 3. Uh, you can look at it on your phone. I read from the New International Version. Uh, we have Bibles in the back as well. I always want to say that to let you know that if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to grab one of those. You're welcome to keep it. It's yours. Um, and yeah, so Luke 3, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, when I was in high school, I worked at a kind of an upscale retirement community around the corner from my house. It was kind of like, it was the job that everybody wanted as a teenager because the hours were pretty good, the pay was great. Uh, my wife also worked there, Jess worked there, and she was part of the wait staff. So she was a waitress who would go out and work in the dining room with sort of the, the, the senior citizens that were there, and she would serve them food and everything. I was what was called a porter, which meant I was uh, part of another staff. I was in the kitchen. I was kind of a, a janitor of sorts. We were dishwashers. Um, we had to clean up the messes that the wait staff made uh, and, and, and deal with their broken dishes and things like that. And I, but like, like I said, it was a great job. It was a fun place to work, um, you know, despite being a job where I had to wash dishes. Anyway. Uh, we had two different supervisors. There was a supervisor over the wait staff and a supervisor over the porters. And uh, my supervisor was a guy named Al. And Al was a bit peculiar, but he was a good man. He was, he was fun to be with. Um, he, he set clear expectations. He didn't just sit in his office. He would come out and, and be with us. He would show us what to do. He would drop down onto the floor and he would tell us, we want to scrub under here. We want to do this with the dishes. And he would jump on the line with us and help take off the clean dishes and put them away and everything. He was a, he was a great guy and fun to just be with. Now, the woman who was the supervisor uh, over the wait staff, she was not an enjoyable person to be with. She would sit in her office doing I don't know what, and then she would come out with this sort of stern look on her face. She literally would walk like you would see in like, in, in, in like this. She'd walk very deliberate, like she was looking for something to be angry about. And she was just not enjoyable to be with. And there were days where Al wouldn't be there, and this woman would be in charge of us too, and it was just... A miserable experience because she was so mean. But Al was just so great to be with, and he was one of us, and he worked with us, and he was just an all-around good guy and fun to be with. Well, what I want to talk about today and what we see in the baptism of Jesus is, is this picture of a God who is with us, who, who comes to our level and is with us and walks with us in our ordinary lives, in our Humanity. It's kind of what I want to draw out of this story, this baptism of Jesus. Now, 
if you know the story of the baptism of Jesus, you know that it takes place with, with this guy named John. And John was born to a, a priest and his wife who were beyond childbearing years. It was sort of this miraculous birth that happened. An angel you know, told them this was going to happen. Um, they, they end up having this child, and God says, he's going to be one who helps point the people of God back to me. And he's going to point forward to the Messiah. He's going to point to the one who's going to come and going to rescue Israel. And, and John was a, a fiery guy. He was a little bit obscure. He lived outside the norms of, of society, and he lived outside the norm of, of the locale where everyone else wanted to live. He lived out in the desert uh, where he was baptizing people in sort of the Jordan River and in the tributaries that, that would lead to it. And, and so he goes on, and he ends up being come known as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist, which is a name that if you've grown up in the church, you, you know this name. Well, John's ministry, if you study kind of geographically where it took place, was to the east of Jerusalem— and, and a little bit north, and it's across the Jordan River. So the Jordan River is kind of the dividing line of the promised land. He worked and did his ministry in what is now the country of Jordan, uh, and sort of a little bit north uh, of, of uh, Jerusalem. And it was an area that, if you look on the map, was, was basically directly across from two ancient cities that were kind of storied in Israel's past, the cities of Jericho and then a, a town called Gilgal. And he was doing his ministry right across from them. That's significant um, for a lot of reasons. Some, some incredible things had happened in Israel's past, right there, in that area, right where he was doing his ministry and baptizing people, some crazy things that happened in Israel's past that, that when people would go there and experience the ministry and experience the baptism of John, they were going to a place that they knew well, that was in their history. They would identify with things and people and events that had happened right in this place. So if you want to think about it like this, if I was talking to you about the Revolutionary War, and I said to you, hey, in the Revolutionary War, Boston, things would start to come to mind. If you studied history at all, you remember this from school. If I mentioned Boston and the Revolutionary War, you would start to think through things like the Boston Tea Party. You would think through uh, you know, a bloody uh, fight that really kicked off the Revolutionary War. You would think of, of Paul Revere or Sam Adams, and, and you would remember all these things having to do with this place of Boston. Or if I mentioned the Revolutionary War in Philadelphia, you would probably think of maybe, maybe if you really studied history, you'd remember the Continental Congress took place there. You'd remember the Liberty Bell. You would know Independence Hall. You would think of Ben Franklin or, you know, Thomas Jefferson being there in the city. And so you, these places bring up a part of our history, our kind of shared history here in the United States. Well, what we see happening with John baptizing people across from Gilgal, across the Jordan River, what we see happening is it's bringing up these, these memories for the people of Israel. Their history had happened in this place. It was significant to them in their past. And I want to just briefly bring two of these things to the forefront because we see Jesus end up living into them as well. The first one has to do with way back in Israel's history. If you remember, they, they were in Egypt. They were enslaved there by these evil taskmasters, um, these slave drivers, the Egyptians, and God sends a man named Moses to free them and lead them out of slavery into a land that he had promised to their forefather Abraham 400 years earlier. So it becomes known as the promised land. It's this land they're looking forward to where their lives will be great. And Moses leads them out of Egypt, and they're, they're traveling through the desert, and they start to doubt. They start to worship idols. They don't believe that God's going to do this for them. So God says, okay, you're going to wander for 40 years until you really come to believe that I will do this. So right before they're going to move into the promised land, they come up on the 
other side of the Jordan River from the Promised Land. What's that? The, the, the further east side of the Jordan River. And they come up through the desert, and they're looking at the Jordan River, looking into the Promised Land. Moses lets, God lets Moses see it, and he says, you're not going to lead them in. Joshua is going to lead them in. So Moses appoints this man named Joshua, whose name, if you look at it, really is, it means Yeshua saves. It means God saves. So Moses puts Joshua in charge And God miraculously parts the Jordan River directly across from Gilgal, directly across from the city of Jericho. And they cross over from the the dry, barren desert, the wilderness they'd been wandering in, through the Jordan River into the promised land, all under this man named Yeshua saves. Yeshua is our salvation. Well, it's the same place that John is baptizing people. It's the same place where he's doing his ministry. Several centuries later, uh, there's a man named Elijah, and Elijah comes, and he is a prophet from God, and his name is also connected to meaning that God is the authority, Yeshua is the one who is powerful. So Elijah comes, and and he is called by God to, to prophesy to the people, to be a prophet, but to exhort them, to pastor them, to encourage them to return to the worship of only Yahweh instead of worshiping idols. Now, Elijah was also a fiery guy. He was a bit obscure. He did crazy things. He had no problems confronting kings and queens and saying, you're evil. You are not worshiping the God that we've been called to worship. He tells the people, you're worshiping idols. What are you doing? Why are you living this way? He gets right in their faces. He does the prophets of Baal thing on top of Mount Carmel. If you remember this crazy thing that happens when fire comes down from God and burns up the altar. I mean, he's involved in dynamic, dynamic ministry. Well, Towards the end of his life, God tells Elijah, I want you to go across the Jordan, and I'm, I'm going to bring you to me. I'm going to bring you home. You're going to die. But I want you to bring with you, well, actually, he doesn't want to. Elijah, his, his servant, Elisha, says, I'm going to go with you. And, and Elijah says, okay, come with me. We go across. They go across the Jordan River at the same place. At Gilgal, they cross over into the far east side of the Jordan River, Through this miraculous thing, Elijah parts the Jordan River. They walk across. And Elijah, right before he dies, says to his apprentice, Elisha, he says, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit. Like the things that you can do, the power and authority that you have, I want twice as much. And Elijah's like, I don't know if that can happen. I don't know if I can do that. But if you see me when I go off to be with God, he'll do this for you. Maybe God will do this for you. So this whirlwind of fire comes, this chariot of fire comes, and and Elijah disappears, goes to be with God. And his cloak falls and is laying on the ground. And Elisha goes and picks it up. And it's symbolic of the double portion of Elijah's spirit coming on to Elisha so that he can go and do even more dynamic prophetic ministry for the people of God. And Elisha takes that cloak and he touches the Jordan River and it parts and he walks back across. He walks back into the promised land at Gilgal, across from Jericho, right where John the Baptist is doing this dynamic ministry. And what's happening, though, is that Elijah is passing his authority on to Elisha. And Elisha goes back in, into the promised land. All of this happened, like I said, right where John is baptizing people. So when John is calling these people to come and be baptized across from Gilgal, they know this place. Like we would know Boston or Philadelphia, they know what has happened here. It is part of their storied past. Their heroes have been involved here. Their, their ancestors have crossed into the promised land here. They know this area. 
And now they come to John the Baptist, who Scripture goes on to call the new Elijah. He's the new, he's the spirit of Elijah at work, pointing the people back to God here in this area of Gilgal across the Jordan River. And we see that he goes on to hand off his ministry to another who will lead them into their full inheritance in God. So when the people are coming to Elijah, to this, to this uh, new Elijah, John, to be baptized, it's at this great place of history and importance. And, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record in their accounts of Jesus' life that Jesus is, goes to this place to be baptized. That the next event after his birth, after the, what we just celebrated in the Christmas season, the next major event that they document is that Jesus goes to be baptized by John in this place. So I want to read uh, this this passage with you from Luke 3, just to sort of give us the, the biblical account here. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. I'm going to start uh, in Luke 3, 15. Um, yeah, it says this. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. They're wondering if John the Baptist is the Messiah, if he's the one who's going to come and save them. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So he's saying, look, I'm not the guy. There's going to be one who comes after me who's more powerful than me. You can see this Elijah, Elisha imagery start to come to bear. John goes on, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, for me, what I interpret there when he's talking about fire is sort of the Old Testament idea of fire as judgment, as sort of making things pure, as purifying things and bringing righteousness and justice and making things right kind of on an internal level with people. But the religious, Jesus wanted nothing to do with. So he goes on in verse 18, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, meaning, i.e., he was having an affair, and all the other things, uh, evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So we see John removed from the picture, the, the new Elijah removed from the picture, and the new ministry of the new Elisha starting to begin. Moving on, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Halai, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi. Now you're looking at this long list like, Jim, please don't read all of these names. Okay, I'm not going to. But what, what Luke is doing here, Matthew does the same thing, is he's tracing Jesus' lineage all the way back, saying here is who he is a part of. All these generations of, of the, 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 you know, the forebears of Israel. And if you look up in verse 31, he says Jesus goes on to be the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. He's saying he goes all the way back to King David. Then he goes on, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. If you know the story of Ruth and Boaz, it's sort of that crazy story that happens there. He's saying Jesus is connected to that story as well. And then if you go down to uh, verse 36, it says he's the son of Shem, the son of Noah. Jesus' story goes back through Noah. And he goes on to say the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, 
the Son of God. What Luke is doing so well is placing Jesus into the story of Israel and into the story of all of us. Because if we would all say that we trace our lineage back to our first parents, we're related. Jesus is now not just part of Israel, not the fulfillment of Israel's history, but he's the fulfillment of all of us. We are all humanity, and he is fully humanity. Fully God, fully man, fully part of Israel, the, the, the fulfillment of Israel's promises, and our Savior for all of humanity. I love Luke, the way he writes for drawing this out and connecting it to Jesus' baptism. There's another picture here that I want to point out as well that I find fascinating is that there's this, this verse there that says that when Jesus was baptized, that, that the, the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove and landed on him, that heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit came down on him. I think there's some imagery here going back to Ezekiel, who had the same thing happen, that, that the heavens were opened to him when he was about 30 years old and he, and he sees God at work. Well, this is exactly what's happening to Jesus, is that the heavens are open. He's now this connection between humanity and God. Heaven is open and the Spirit comes and lands on him like a dove. Now, where else have we seen a dove in Scripture? Go all the way back to the story of Noah. Right? If you remember this story, Noah uh, comes through the flood and it rains and it rains and the earth is covered with water and everything is destroyed. All vegetation, all the animals, everything is destroyed except for what Noah preserves. And when, when finally the ark comes to rest on a mountain after a little while, Noah tries to determine if it's safe to leave the ark. So he sends out a dove to fly out and the dove goes out, looks around and comes back, indicating that there's nothing out there yet. So then he sends out the dove a little while later and the dove goes out and comes back with an olive branch symbolizing that something's starting to happen. There's new life starting to sprout. Maybe the trees are starting to come out of the top of the water. You remember what happens the third time? He sends out the dove, and it doesn't come back. The dove goes out looking for new creation, finding it somewhere out in hope, looking for this. And Moses says, okay, or Noah says, we've got hope. We can go out looking for this new creation. And what one of my favorite commentators, N.T. Wright, says is that the next time we see the dove land is on Jesus, the symbol of purified new creation starting to grow on the earth and that we have hope that we can lean into because we see that he is God's anointed who the dove has landed on to bring the ministry of the Spirit. He's the new Elisha with the Spirit that has come upon him. We see the Trinity at work in this story. We see God the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit there, Jesus. This is the Trinity at work, this community of God that's, that's happening there. And one of my favorite parts of this whole thing is God looks upon his son, connected all the way back to Adam, and he says, this is good. This is good. I am well pleased with this. It's the same thing that God said when he looked at Adam and Eve. He said, this is good. I take delight in this, but with Jesus, this is a new creation. This is a new man, the new Adam, the fulfillment of all of humanity, the fullness of Israel, the fullness of humanity. But to me, there's, there's one thing that I want to draw out of this for us to kind of focus on and to dwell on here as we move forward through this sermon series. If you look at verse 21, it says this, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was with them. Jesus was baptized too. And like I said, we see that Luke goes on to connect him to all of humanity after that, but 
What does it mean? What does it say to us? What picture of God do we get to see that Jesus is baptized with the people? What does this say to you? What stands out to you in this? I mean, think about that for a moment. What do we see about our God who will walk into the Jordan River with his people and be baptized? Just maybe process that in the coming week a little bit more. Let that soak in. There's a a story, again, I was on like a Revolutionary War kick this week. Uh, There's a story about George Washington uh, that I've known for a long time, and historians have commented on it and written about it. It's a fascinating story. In, In March of 1783, right near the end of the Revolutionary War, about six months before the war was going to end, George Washington was with his troops in, in Newburgh, New York. And it's near the end of the war. They're tired. They've been fighting for years. They've lost loved ones. They've lost friends. They're injured. They start to become very disgruntled. And there's a rumor going around, a letter circulating, that the Continental Congress is not going to make good on their word to give them their back pay. That the Continental Congress is not going to make good on their promise to give them a pension and to care for them. And this letter starts circulating that says, here's what you should do. Officers, this is what you should do. You should take your your regiments and you should go and move west. Go out into the wilderness, go out into the west and start a new life. Let the country fend for themselves. Which is a ludicrous idea. Like, you're going to leave everything you fought for. You're going to leave your families. Like, what in the world is this letter saying? So he says, "Go go out and leave, go out into the west. Or, an even more insidious thing, he says... Maybe you should march on Philadelphia. Get everybody together, march on Philadelphia, and in a coup, take over the Congress and set up sort of a a military government. And George Washington gets word of this, and he's like, well, this is terrible. This is going to end the war. This is going to wreck everything. We're going to lose the country, everything we've been fighting for. So he tells the officers, listen, don't have this impromptu meeting to discuss this. Wait till our normal officers meeting a couple days from now, and then have your meeting. Just let cooler heads prevail, and they say, okay, fine. They assume that one of their guys who's sympathetic to their cause is going to lead the meeting. Washington's not even going to be there. Meanwhile, another letter starts circulating saying that Washington's actually sympathetic to this. He's actually opposed to the Continental Congress. Like, leader, like, he can't win. Like, the poor guy's been fighting the entire war, and now the Congress is... Anyway, so Washington says, meet in a couple days. Have the meeting without me. But at the last minute, Washington shows up to the meeting. He slips in somewhat unannounced, which is hard for a guy who's like six and a half feet tall, slips in somewhat inconspicuously into the group, and he asks if he can address the men. And he gets up and he reads, uh, or he he speaks what's now like a nine-page talk to these guys. And what he does is he identifies with them. He says, look, I know what you've been going through. I've been part of this with you. You're right to feel the way that you do, that you want to be paid well for this, that you want a pension for this. But the way you're going about it is bonkers. You're going to lose everything that we've been fighting for. You're going to go and you're going to set up a military government when we've been trying to set up a civilian government. Like, don't do this. Do not give in to this. So he's kind of encouraging them to say, I understand what you're feeling, but rebuking them at the same time. Well, when, when he finished his prepared remarks, he... He reached into his pocket and he took out another letter. It was a letter from a congressman in Virginia who who was able to advocate for behalf of the soldiers, promising that the Continental Congress was working on this. Probably a friend of Washington's from Virginia. Washington starts to read this letter. And then he pauses awkwardly. He starts fidgeting in his pocket and he pulls out a pair of reading glasses. Now, his officers had never seen him wear glasses 
had never seen him show any kind of weakness or frailty like this. And historians say that he, he commented, he said, gentlemen, you must pardon me, for I've grown not only gray, but blind in the service to my country. And one historian said that immediately the officers were stunned. Many openly wept. Their mutinous mood gave way immediately to affection for their commander. He finished reading the letter, strode out of the room, and left them to vote on what they were going to do. The men voted to, unanimously voted to not mutiny, to hold out hope that the Congress would care for them, inevitably, in my mind, saving the war from being lost, saving the country. We'd be in a very different place had this not happened. So why does this story stand out to us and historians? Why, does, why did grown men start weeping at the sight of, of Washington simply putting on reading glasses? Well, because in one act of, of humility and even embarrassment, in one statement of saying he'd gone blind fighting alongside of them, fighting with them, Washington was declaring, I am with you. I'm with you. I've been with you. Would you stay with me? Would you stay committed to our cause? I'm with you. This is the power of with in our lives, the power of with in humanity. And what Luke and Matthew are recording is that when the people were being baptized, when all the people were coming out to be baptized, Jesus was baptized with them. He didn't stay far off. He goes with them to be baptized. They both record in his lineage that he is one of us, that he is with us in our humanity. He's one of us. Listen, Jesus could have gone to the center of political and religious life in Jerusalem. He could have gone and, and, and done some crazy miracles and said, come to me, come to me, aren't I amazing? Come worship me. He could have gone, he could have taken out Caesar, he could have taken out the Roman government and said, bow before me and struck them dead. He could have taken out Herod and, and all these religious rulers who were like, you know, just putting the people into religious legalism. He could have done all these things, but he doesn't. What's his first act of, of public ministry? To go far away from the power, far away from the throne, out into the Judean desert on the other side of the Jordan River to be baptized with the people to be with them in their act of repentance, joining them in their devotion to God, admitting his humanity, his frailty, his weakness, his dependence on the Father. Now, he didn't need to be baptized to be clean. He didn't need to be baptized for the repentance of sin like John was calling the people to. He did it to be with them. And I would say that he did it to be a symbol of, of the people moving into the promised land like Joshua had led them, a symbol of the new Elisha with the power of God on him, a symbol of the new Ezekiel, a symbol of the new Moses, a symbol of the new Noah coming through the flood into purity, into the promised land. What he was saying to them is that when they would repent and turn in their ways, when John would call them repentance, they would turn, God is there with them already. Friends, This is our story as well. This is our story too, that we are loved by the Father who sent his Son to be with us, to walk in our shoes, to be there when we repent, actually causing us to repent because he's already right there with us, calling us to it, and to turn back to God, standing along the muddy banks of our lives with us. He doesn't stand far off. But like I said, simultaneously, he's not just with us. He is our new 
leader, our new creation, our promise of the promised land, our full inheritance that, that, that leads us into fullness of life now and into a new creation someday, a new heaven, a new earth that we get to live in because of all he has done and all he has accomplished. He's the hope of the dove looking for new creation to land on and to make all things new. Is this the picture of God that you have in your heart? Is this the picture of God that you have in your mind? The God who walks in the muck and mire of our lives with us into our repentance with us, into leading us into hope. A God who walked the earth in weakness, in frustration, in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of poverty and brokenness. A God who walks with us and leads us into full life. Um, so I'm just going to tell you about my week, okay, and how this applied to me this week. I had a, I was, anyway, I had a bad week. I had a rough week. Nothing that you haven't walked through, okay, nothing so crazy that none of you haven't walked through. But I ended up taking it out on my family. I ended up using anger and a raised voice to try to accomplish good things in my home. And what I had to remind myself after coming through this stress and then taking it out on others, I had to remind myself and gospel myself that, that God doesn't stand there wagging his finger at me saying, oh, you should know better. Trust me, I started to feel that. You should, you're a pastor. You should know better than that. That's not God. That's the enemy. That's a lie. God stands there saying, I'm with you. I'm with, would you turn and repent? Would you apologize to your family, you knucklehead? Like, come on, like, don't live like that. I've got a better life for you. I'm with you. I have to teach myself this, preach this to myself. This is the beauty of community, getting to preach this to one another, reminding one another that God is with us, not far off on a throne condemning us, but with us in the muck and mire of our lives and our brokenness and saying, I love you. Turn to me. Turn to me. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Walk with me. Jesus knows our weakness. Jesus knows injustice that you might be suffering. Jesus knows messed up relationships. Think about how much his disciples hurt him, most notably Judas, who would betray him. Jesus knows lack of finances. He was poor and homeless, okay? Jesus knows physical weakness to the point of death. He understands because he has walked with us. Friends, when we look at Jesus, we see this picture of God. A picture that shows us that God is not on some faraway throne saying, rise up to meet me. Become more like me so you can be in my presence. Get on my level. And he's not a God who looks down at us and says, you're a mess. You don't deserve to be anywhere near me. Shame on you. Instead, Jesus paints a picture of what I would say is a godly reality, that God is with us in the mess, with us in our shame, with us in our weakness and brokenness, with us when we turn and repent, and he leads us into transformation. He doesn't want us to stay in that. He offers us a full life, and he walks with us into it. At the end of Matthew, I'll close with this. At the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, Jesus gives what's called the Great Commission, He says, go, go and tell people about me. And Jess and I were talking this morning. She she heard a woman say recently that an interpretation of that would be, I came to be with you. 
Now go and be with others. Friends, this is one of the greatest evidences we have of Jesus being with us is one another, of us getting to carry out Jesus and the gospel to one another, sharing him with us. In the book of John, Jesus says, abide with me. Abide with me. I abide with you. Stay with me. I'm staying with you. Friends, this is our God. This is the picture of our God, a God who came to be with us and to walk with us into the promised land of new life and transformation now and for all of eternity. Would you see him as that? Focus on that this week. Believe that and see how it leads you into a transformed life and community. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, admit right now that we are weak and hurting and broken. We admit that we need to repent or to turn and to worship you. And we are grateful and believe that you are already there with us, that you are not far off, that you are with us through one another and through your spirit. And through your word, you are with us. Thank you. Jesus, thank you for understanding what it means to be human. Thank you for showing us what it means to be fully human in devotion to God. Would you give us strength to believe that? Help us in our unbelief. Help us, help us get rid of old religious and legalistic thoughts that say we need to impress you, that we need to do well so that you'll love us. Help us believe that you are with us, demonstrated by your life and by your sacrifice and by your resurrection. Help us believe that and be transformed by that, to be transformed by that good news, by that gospel. Help us be a community that lives this out with one another and out into the valley around us. In Jesus' name, amen.